Let's launch into our study now. A Peculiar Glory is the name of the book. And you, uh, you can get this book online, but I would not even recommend getting it because we're going to walk through it together unless you really just want to know what's coming up and what we're teaching through and so on and so forth. We're going to open it up to a bit of discussion. And as always, it's Wednesday night, so if you have a question or a comment, just pop your hand up in the air and we'll be sure to answer that. Let's consider what glory is. You ever thought about that? What is the definition of glory? And I think of glory, I think of this. I think, I think we know that, that no one is more beautiful, more valuable, more significant, or more satisfying than our God, right? Amen. We know that. And so I think if we were to define glory, we would understand that when the beauty, the value, the weight, the satisfying nature of God flows out of our perception or our understanding of him, we call that the glory of God. Uh, and so this is the thrust behind this entire study we're going to begin. I, I remember, and I think one of the reasons I picked this book is I can identify with the author and the things that he was struggling with as well. I remember wrestling very much with a man-centered, man-exalting vision of the world uh, as a young Christian. And God changed it to a God-exalting, God-centered uh, vision of the world. And so the author of our book, he talks about something just like that. He says, the main dead teacher outside the Bible that helped him was one of my favorite figures in all of history, and that is Jonathan Edwards. Everyone know Jonathan Edwards in here? Uh, and that book that he wrote, which was called The End for Which God Created the World. And the main point of that book, The End for Which God Created the World, is that the end for which God created the world was the exaltation of his glory communicated to his people for their happiness. That's a big sentence, I know that, but it's such a deep sentence, isn't it? That the reason, the end for which God created the world is so that we would be satisfied in recognizing that our purpose on this earth is to bring glory and honor to him. And as that's communicated to us, it brings God glory and we find delight in that. So as Edwards leads the reader through the Bible in that book, he shows that God does everything he does in this life to display, to exalt, to show and communicate to the hearts of his creatures the beauty, the value, the weight, the significance, and the satisfying nature of his glory. Everything God does is so that we would glorify him. So what comes together in this study is the fact that we hear that, and what do you think? That this God, everything that this God does is for his own glory? What does that, what does that tempt us to think about this God? What's the temptation there? Yeah, that it's, an, it's an ego trip, right? That it's a self-centered uh, way of thinking about that. And, I, and I, yeah, of course we could be tempted to think about it. This is not selfishness. It's, it's love. And here's why. See, if you happen to be God, the only way you can love people supremely is by giving them yourself for their enjoyment because there's no other better gift to give, <laughs> Right, So if I were to say, you know what, for your enjoyment, I'm going to give you me, that would not be love. Uh, no, not at all. Thank you for shaking your head there, uh, Frank. Appreciate that. Because there is something way better that I could give you, right? Namely, God. God doesn't have anything better than himself. He is, for lack of a better term, he's stuck being God. <laughs> he must love us. By glorifying, exalting himself, and then offering that opportunity 
to us for the satisfaction of our souls because that's the way he made us. So it's a beautiful thing that our purpose is to bring God glory because God's the greatest gift in all the universe. Does that make sense? You understand that? Uh, So all other pleasures in life, they are just echoes of that central purpose to bring him glory. So it's a glorious thing to discover that God is totally committed to exalting God. It's a really good thing for those of us who are sinners through Jesus who paid all of our debts so that we could have God as a father, as a shepherd, as a king, bringing all of his excellencies to us to exalt forever. So that's a beautiful thing. So we're going to spend some energy connecting this idea of glory, this idea that our purpose is what? What's our purpose on this life? To glorify God, to bring all these ideas together, uh, spending some energy talking about how the Bible does that. I, I spend a lot of energy talking about the Bible. In fact, it's always funny to tell unbelievers what I do on a day-to-day basis, right? Because uh, I, I, when I think about what they must think that I do, uh, it would be, this is what I do. I, I go, I look at a book, and then I tell people what I saw in that book, right? And then I go back to the book and I look some more. And then people come to me and they ask me questions. And I go look at the book. <laughs> uh, that's, I tell them what I saw in the book. And what a strange life that is, right? Uh, and yet, if you took the book out of the equation, what would I do? What would I bring before you every Sunday? It would, I'd have to come up with ideas or fancy thoughts. Uh, uh, but we have a book from God. Or, or, or do we, right? But that's the, that's the question. That's the argument whether or not we're going to decide that. So I originally thought about uh, looking at a study on how to study the book, hermeneutics, which is what Brock and I will be teaching in Africa on how to study the Bible. But I always come first as I'm teaching you how to study the Bible. Well, how do they know it's true? How, how do they really know it's true? Why would they devote so much energy to it? Why would you go around the world asking people to stake their life on the message of this book? So I decided instead to do this study because this is what the book Peculiar Glory is all about. Now, if you were to ask me as a kid why I believe the Bible is true, what do you think my answer would be as a kid raised in church? Why? Because I was told, because my parents told me that the Bible is true, right? And listen, is that bad? No, no that's, a, that's a good thing. Kids ought to believe what their parents tell them is true, which is why parenting has such a, a weighty responsibility. But will that cut it at 16, 26, 36? No, that, that has to grow. Uh, you have to make it your own, and there better be some good reasons as to why you believe this Bible is true. So around for me, around age 22, right before seminary, uh, which is scary, I was listening to a lot of uh, apologetic debates, right? So um, one was uh, this guy who was debating a Muslim on the resurrection. I remember it just stood out to me, and I was like, man, that's so, these arguments are so great. An argument on one, did he really rise? An argument saying that the Bible is true. Arguments that, uh, that, that the whole Old Testament, Testament is inspired, New Testament inspired, and, and we got uh, historical foundations. And listen, to this day, I love apologists. I love people who devote their lives and labors to defending the faith, as we talk about, right? That's a good and healthy thing, the people to answer those questions and provide historical foundations to believing the truth of the Bible. I love that. Uh, but I would go out of these lectures and out of listening to these baits feeling so great, with so much confidence that I thought, 
Oh, I, I'm going to take over the world, right? I, I got it. I, I know all the answers to the, to the questions that people ask. But what would happen is a leak, week later, I would find myself trying to reconstruct those answers. And, well, I forgot. <laughs> I failed miserably. It, it, if they had three steps, I'd probably remember a couple of the points, but I just wouldn't be able to articulate it the way those guys were able to, or I forget the third. So I got to thinking, what if I was in a conversation with a really smart unbeliever? You've had that before, right? It's one of the reasons why we're hesitant is because what if I get shown up? He was, what if this unbeliever was pushing me and I was trying to give him everything I learned from that debate, but I just couldn't remember all the steps in the argument? And, and guys, this was what I would call like an existential crisis for me, right? Because here's what I thought. I thought to myself, if my steady confidence in Jesus, right? If my, if my confidence that this is the word of God, if my confidence rises and falls with my own ability to recall or reconstruct sophisticated arguments, whether they be philosophical or historical, I'm done. <laughs> I, I cannot defend it. I, I, I am not that smart. I can't reconstruct things that way. And then it hit me. Okay, but forget about me. What about the villager in Haiti who is maybe pre-literate, maybe they understand words, they just can't read yet, and yet they hear the gospel and that person believes. Could, could a villager in Haiti uh, have a sufficient confidence in fact, such a confidence that he could die for the message of the gospel and not be considered a fool as he dies. Which means that there would be enough ground, there would be enough foundation under his confidence in the Bible from just hearing the message. And that he's not an idiot to lay down his life for what he just heard a few months ago. Because as I read the Bible, I know that this Christianity... Does it stay central? No, we should know that from the book of Acts, right? It goes to all cultures, to all peoples, all times, and everybody is responsible to believe it, but not even that, but to stake their life on it, right? To die for it even. In fact, Luke chapter 9, verse 23, and Luke 14, 27, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, the Bible says, cannot be my disciple. So, so here's what, what Luke says in that text is, if you don't take up your cross, if you don't follow Jesus, then you're not a believer and you're going to hell. That to me seemed like an unbelievable expectation to put on an average human being when they hear this word coming out of this book. So I would say, Lord, how in the world can you put that kind of expectation, that kind of sacrifice on a human being? What, is, what would be the basis of that? What would be the foundation of it? See, I think for the West, it's a little bit easier for us because our lives aren't at stake to believe this book. <laughs> we, don't, we don't risk as much. And so it's easy for us to sit in here and say, I know the Bible's true because I've always believed it. But what about that? It just struck me. What about that villager in Africa? What about 
Uh, What's the foundation? So for me, it's not even mainly about providing an argument to fight against atheists or to debate somebody. That's not the main agenda of the study. When, When we include this study, we want to focus on the thousands of people groups all over the world in different cultures and different ages of history. All of them, by the way, accountable to God. They need to hear the gospel. And when they hear the gospel, God has evidently made it possible for them to know the message is true and say, I can die for this without being a fool. So I want us to know, how is it that they know? How is it that they know? And that's what this study about. And the depth and confidence to die from Jesus has to come from some other source than just reconstructed uh, rehashed arguments, right? So that's, that's our goal in this study. My goal was not for you to remember the arguments for the Bible as to why it's true so that you can go and debate friends about it. My goal is for that you would, you would see such glory in the scriptures, such a work of the display of the glory of God which you were created that you would see the life it brings. You'd be able to proclaim it and have full confidence in knowing This is true. So that's what the study is about. Can an eight-year-old know the Bible is true with the knowledge uh, that is unshakable, that is well-grounded with the capacities that an eight-year-old has? That's really relevant to us, right? So what I want to do tonight to start off and to launch into this kind of idea, you see why I'm not getting started really all within the study tonight, is I want to uh, try to give you a taste of this. And in fact, John Piper lists that there are really three sentences or statements that prove him to write this, that, uh, that drove him to write this study. Jonathan Edwards uh, gives one, and that's the one I just want to read to you tonight. It's more like a paragraph. Uh, you know Jonathan Edwards, pastor in the 18th century, 1703 to 1758, died young, a uh, brilliant man. Wow, what he accomplished in, in 55 years, right? Uh, he actually got fired from his church. Did y'all know that? And, and spent, uh, you can read his biography. I've got a couple. Uh, I've, uh, one written by Piper, actually, which is great. The last years, the last eight years of his ministry, he ministered in a small frontier town among Native Americans called Stockbridge. And the Indians were of the uh, Housatonic tribe. And here, this world-class theologian, who actually, honestly, may be the smartest theologian America has ever seen in their history, uh, he's ministering to non-literate Native Americans the gospel. And so he needed to know, how do they know and have confidence in this just like I know? So I'm going to read what he wrote here. And this is, this is Jonathan Edwards. It's old English a little bit. So try and uh, keep up with me if you can. And just ask me to slow down if I need to. Okay. So he said, Miserable is the condition of the Housatonic Indians and others who have lately manifested a desire to be instructed in Christianity. They wanted to know Christ. If they can come at no evidence of the truth of Christianity, sufficient to induce them to sell all for Christ in any other way but this path of historical arguments and reasoning. That's a long, complicated sentence, isn't it? Let me, let me restate that. What Jonathan Edwards is arguing is he's saying, how miserable are the Indians if the only path they have to the certainty of the Bible is the path of historical reasoning? They don't even know there's another world outside of America, right? Let alone Jesus, let alone the Roman Empire, let alone the context of anything except what you share with them in a few months. 
quote goes on. He says, thus, a soul may have a kind of intuitive knowledge of the divinity of the things exhibited in the gospel, not that he judges the doctrines of the gospel to be from God without any argument or deduction at all, but it's without any long chain of arguments. He says the argument is but one, and the evidence is direct. The mind ascends to the truth of the gospel but by one step, and that step, he says, is divine glory. Unless men may come to a reasonable, solid persuasion and conviction of the truth of the gospel by the eternal evidences of it, nay, by a sight of glory, it's impossible that those who are literate and unacquainted with history should have any thorough or effectual conviction of it at all. So, okay, what, what does that mean? He says, the only tool that they'll know to, to come to know the gospel, he says, the only internal evidence, it's by the sight of of divine glory. So, so what in the world is that? What's divine glory? Well, that's really what our study is all about. And we're going to argue that the simplest person or the most educated person can come at this unshakable, well-grounded conviction of the truth of the scriptures by means of seeing divine glory. So when I say seeing, when I say sight, what do you think I mean by that? Think I mean sight with your eyes? Sight with your ears? Now, is it important to, to read the gospel and hear the gospel? Oh, you betcha, right? You, you have to, to read it and you have to, to hear it. Sure, absolutely, that's important. But, but what I ultimately mean uh, by sight is the same thing that Paul meant in Ephesians 1.18. It's the eyes of the heart. And make that phrase up. Paul made that up. Well, Paul didn't make that phrase up. He was inspired to write it. That's probably drawn out even from Jesus' statement when he said to the Pharisees, he said, seeing you do not see. That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees, right? You see and you don't see. Brilliant, right? You hear and you don't hear. And guess what? You are responsible for the second seeing. You're responsible for the second hearing. And if you don't see and you don't hear, then you are culpable and you are guilty. So what is it? What is seeing that is not with the eyes and hearing that isn't with the ears? That is the thing that Edwards argues is the foundation for people having confidence in the scriptures. See, let's just say this. If anyone in this room were to, to say, do you believe that Cody Page is standing before you up here teaching? And you said yes. And they said why? You probably wouldn't say, well, I, I heard on Sunday that he was going to be teaching here on Wednesday night. And then number two... Now it's Wednesday night, and number three, he's right there where they said he was going to be, right? And, and then number four, therefore I must be here. You don't do that. What, what do you say? He's there, right? I'm right here. This is, this is why you believe I'm teaching you, is because I'm, I'm, you're experiencing it. You're seeing it. That physical argument of light coming into your eyeball and the, the pudgy shape of Pastor Cody Page, that, that same thing is what happens to us spiritually. That's the same exact thing that happens to us spiritually when we encounter the glories of God. That's what he's arguing. This study tries to show us that this is how the Bible wants you to think about itself, about the foundations of your certainty. So here's how we're going to spend the remainder of our night here. In order, I know this is a... 
This is a deep concept, and in order to try and really get you to grasp or, or get a hold of exactly what we're talking about here, to make you comfortable with this outline of thinking that the Bible itself is a display of God's glory, and that's a foundation worth stating your life on, I'm going to use three analogies that we see uh, in the scriptures that, we, that uh, Piper actually puts in the introduction that I think you're familiar with here. Uh, and these analogies... Are, are how God authenticates, God validates, he confirms the truth of his word through a sight, through us seeing his glory in it. Okay? Let's think about these. Analogy number one. Uh, and the reason I'm saying this is right now, right, if I were to, to take a microphone to each of you and say, I want you to describe your experience with the glory of God and the word of God that brought you to believe the Bible. You might be looking at me like you're looking at me right now, right? Please don't do that. I don't know how I would put that into words. Well, let's think about this. Uh, Analogy number one that shows us how God affirms and validates seeing that divine glory is, is the analogy of nature. We know this, right? The analogy of nature. Psalm 19, 1. Anybody know that verse? I'll start you off. The heavens... That's right. The heavens are telling, the heavens declare the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. That means, what does that mean? That means that God expects you to look at the stars, at the sun, at the moon, at the galaxies, the cosmos, all the majestic, incredible, amazing things in this world that God made and he expects you to see the glory of God in it. But here's the catch with that. The glory of nature is not the glory of God. Nature points us to it, right? Nature points us to the glory of God. It echoes the glory of God. It leads to the glory of God. But it's not the glory of God. Because actually, I I heard this story. Albert Einstein looked at the glory of the heavens, went to church, and said, I have seen so much more glory than the preachers that I don't even know what they're talking about. Which, by the way, motivated me to such a degree to say, I never want to be the type of preacher where anybody can come in here and say that they've looked at nature and have seen a far more divine glory than what I'm preaching, right? That is a convicting statement right there. Uh, Einstein was not a believer. He saw glory, but he didn't see the glory of God. So what does that mean? That the heavens are telling of the glory of God. Well, I think that it means that you've got an eye here, right? And an eye here. And and for those who have eyes to see, when these eyes see that, they see through it. (laughs) When these eyes see the beauty of God, you know that beyond a shadow of doubt, God made that. I've probably walked the path from from my house to my office or to this church about a thousand times now. Um, I, I try to think sometimes just what exactly it would be like to believe that God did not make this guy. I try and wrap my head around how anybody could possibly think that the beautiful colors I see on a day-by-day basis, the beautiful sunsets, the beautiful expanse of the heavens, how people could possibly believe that God did not make that. Even if you can explain to me why the sky makes the colors that it does. Put a name on it. I don't care. I cannot not believe that God made this sky. Amen. I just, I can't. 
And, and people may think that's a naive argument, sure. But I really believe that when I stand before God on judgment day and everyone is gathered and I'm standing there and God looks out on all the atheists who believe that God did not make this glorious sky, that they are the ones who are going to look ridiculous. I think that's what this verse means. That the heavens, the skies, from the human eyeball, you look at it and you say, I cannot not believe that God made that. I know it's a double negative. It's okay. We're Callahan. Here's another key verse on this point when we talk about general revelation. It's a general revelation verse. It's Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. Roman, you can write that down if you can. You can turn there if you want. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. We've heard this verse over and over and over again. Paul is talking here to everybody. He's talking here to the nations. Uh, and, and all nations, which is why, by the way, everyone is accountable. And look what he says. He says, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through which what has been made. So that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, this verse always just catches me. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Everybody you know knows God, and then they suppress it. That's, that's astounding, by the way. So what does that mean? I, th I think that there's a, a template or a mold that is perfectly made in the human heart to know God. But instead of knowing God, we, we fill it up with other stuff, right? So the Holy Spirit has to come in and the Holy Spirit has to scrape out all of that junk. And then God turns on the light and we go, yes! Yes, I know God made the world now. There's no way around it. The analogy always goes, many people look at the world maker uh, the world and don't see God as the maker of the world. Many people look at the word of God and don't see God as the word inspirer. So, to, so now you know about the glory of nature, right? It's, it's so that we see with our human eyes and that leads us to understand that God has to be the one to make this. Let's move on to analogy number two. First is the analogy of nature. Second, we've got the analogy of Jesus, the incarnate Christ. There is divine glory certainly in this. John 1.14, another verse we probably know very, very well, right? And the word, we should, it was a memory verse. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So I want you to think about this. When, when John, the writer of the gospel we've been studying, when he looks at Jesus, he looked at this man... Middle Eastern, dark hair, dark beard, just ordinary like every other man. And at that time, he saw God. He saw the Son of God, right? John 14, 8, we, we looked at this not too long ago. Remember Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, what? Philip, have, have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me? That is breathtaking. Show us the Father, the creator of the universe, the ruler of all things, Philip. 
Have I, have I been with you so long and you don't, you don't even know me? Staggering. But here's the problem. When everyone looked at Jesus, did they see the divine glory of God? No. Judas saw him up close for three years, yet didn't see him, instead sold him, right? What's wrong with Judas? John said, we beheld his glory, glory as the only son from the father, but Judas didn't. Who else didn't? The Pharisees, right? We know the Pharisees didn't. Remember the, the story of the raising of Lazarus from the dead? Jesus prays out loud so that they will all know that he is asking the Father to, to raise him from the dead. And he says to Martha, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. And Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man, through the king of kings, receives life and obeys. So he comes out. And what do the Pharisees do? They plotted to kill him. They, they had enough. They immediately wanted to kill him. What can you do? Uh, let's kill him. He raised someone from the dead. Friends, that's blindness, right? And it's not the kind of blindness that, that gives anybody an excuse. It's wicked blindness. A blindness that was so in love with your position, your tradition, your self-exaltation in the synagogues, your spot at the table and spot on the street corners, that you will not give that up even for somebody that raises someone from the dead. It's blindness. So in algae, human comes into the world. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He happens to be by virtue born of a virgin and the miracle of the incarnation, the very God-man. And the way you should know that he is who he says he is, is we beheld his glory. So when you read the Bible, you should ask God to show you that. Do you see the glory of Jesus? If you see it, by the way, you'll know it. Just like you know that light is shining from our ceiling here. Glory is in Jesus. So one of the best evangelical things you can ever do for someone is a Bible study with the Gospel of John. Gospel of Mark or Matthew or Luke. And even if people have a zillion arguments, you just say, would, would you just take 12 weeks or maybe even just a couple meetings at lunch with me? And what you do is you let the Word of God talk. And, and you let him talk and you just watch him. He may, by grace, stand forth with irresistibly beautiful glory. That's analogy number two, the incarnation. So number one, we had the analogy of nature, creation. We see the beauty of the things that are made and we know that God has to have made them and we see his glory. Number two, the incarnation, having Jesus prove who he is by the glory that he shows through the way he talks and acts that we see in the scriptures. One more analogy, number three, and this one really is pretty obvious. It's the analogy of the gospel. So nature, incarnation, the gospel. This one's probably the most important, but it's also the one's really close to our topic that we're going to prove, which is the scriptures, right? Because the gospel is, is a narrative. Uh, it's, it's really, it, it, it's a story uh, within the scriptures, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus on behalf of sinners. So how do you hear the gospel and know it's true? What's the real reason that you hear the gospel and you know it's true? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says this. I love this. Paul says, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see. What, 
What does Satan keep them from seeing that they ought to see? The Bible says, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, follow me here. When the gospel is told, when the gospel is shared, when the gospel is presented, there comes from it, the very nature of it, emits a spiritual glory, a spiritual light that if Satan could be conquered and our own embedded love of darkness could be overcome, it would stream forth like a beam from our hearts with a powerful, yes, it's true. Yes, I believe. Yes, he is Jesus. He is the Lord of all. That's real. That's true. I know this. I would die for this. Now, how that happens is actually in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6. Where Paul says, for God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So verses 4 and 6 there, they're parallel. The light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Same glory. And both of them are the way that we know the gospel is true. Have you seen the glory of Christ in the gospel? Boy, I, I, I hope so. That's a very important question. Have you seen the glory, the light of the gospel? Is there something about the gospel when it's shared, when it's preached, when it's read, that makes you say, this is not made up. This is not mythological. This is not man-made. This is real, and it's so real, in fact, that I'll stake my life on it. The reason... Piper entitles the study a peculiar glory is because there's, there's really no interest here in just general glory. I, I don't know about you, but I, you know, I watch a lot of sports, and so I get to see a lot of glory. A, a walk-off homer is, is glorious, right? A three at the buzzer for a, for a championship. Hitting birdie on 18 hole, right? Th- those are all glorious, glorious events, but that glory doesn't save anybody. That's a a general glory. It may cause us to come out of the couch once or twice, right? But that's that's not actually that type of glory. It doesn't save anybody. This is not what what Piper's talking about in our study. It's not what we're going to be talking about in study. He's talking about a, a peculiar, particular glory. A glory that is really inexplicable. It's unparalleled coming together. From all these wonderful excellencies. And that's from Jonathan Edwards. So if God gives you these eyes of the heart. And you read the Bible from cover to cover. The argument we're making is that you are going to see a peculiar glory of God. That's woven through this book. Such to which that you will know that this book is God's book. So the only thing really left to say in the introductory introduction of this text, of this book, this study, is to say that no one will ever really see this glory without a miracle. You left to your own devices can't even see this particular glory. You can sit there and and try as hard as you want right now to make your eyes to see it, but you can't make it happen. Why? Because we're all born blind, aren't we? We're all born dead in our trespasses and sin. We all are born loving ourselves and our self-exaltation. We love the darkness so we cannot see. It's why 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 6 has to happen. Namely, God has to shine in our hearts to give us his sight. 
The natural person, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, we read this verse all the time, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. So I want to leave you those three analogies and thinking through, have I seen the glory of God in nature? Have I experienced the divine glory of God through Jesus, the incarnate Son? And most importantly, has God shined his light in my heart, exposing me to the gospel? Have I seen the divine glory of the gospel to which I have to in order to be saved? God shows that he made the world. He validates his making of the world, being the one that produced the world by by revealing his glory through what has been made. God validates our confidence that he sent Jesus as the Son of God into the world, and he does it by revealing his glory through the Son. And the gospel is validated by being a revelation of the glory of Christ. We're simply just going to add one more line here through our study. That's the goal in the next 16 weeks. One more line here, and that is the Bible. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to draw it and say that this is the way the whole Bible is validated. The whole Bible is confirmed in our hearts to know it's true. For the sake of the simplest person in the world who's just hearing it for the first time, who has no access to any of the big philosophical or historical arguments or reasoning, but only has a clear, solid presentation from a holy book into their minds. The Holy Spirit takes that and uses it and says, glory. It's that they have a warranted foundation for dying for Christ. Okay, that's all I've got for the night. Any questions or comments on this? I know that's a, that's a weird place to stop and kind of a weird idea, but do you understand what I'm saying? Questions, Clarity? Yeah. Yeah. They wanted to worship something. Yeah. So whenever you show something to, to worship, and it happens to be the right thing, yeah. the Holy Spirit just deals with it. Yeah, so let's, let's take that. It's a great analogy, right? We know because of Romans 1, right, that everybody knows that there's a God, and that's why you have pagan cultures and religions even before the coming of Christ that, that even— can typify and look like some sort of messianic figure, some sort of flood that happens, and they look a lot like Christianity in some ways, but they're rooted and grounded in man's self-centeredness, right? So Frank's statement is they, they already are worshiping something. They're already worshiping something. When you show them the gospel of Christ, they're directed to worship that glory. And that's the argument we're making, is that this, this thing, those things that they've been worshiping, they know in their hearts are, are filled with emptiness and actually have no no glory, right? But when you connect the idea that God is about his own exaltation, when that light is turned on through the gospel of Christ, who Jesus is, through what has been made, and through the Bible, which is our argument, then they understand and they see divine glory, and they know their purpose now is not to work their way to this God, but that this God has worked his way to them. And it's a glorious, wonderful thing when they see that. Absolutely. Good. Any other comments or questions? All right, you guys excited? Now listen, this week is going to look very different from next week, okay? Because we are going to, we're going to look at, we're going to start class next week, okay? Is what we're going to call it. Uh, we've got a lot of things to talk about uh, when it comes to how we got the Old Testament. I'm going to let the, uh, the professor on staff here bring you what it, how we got the New Testament, okay? So uh, it's going to be exciting stuff and really good stuff, so... Um, I see some of you guys brought notebooks already, and I appreciate that. And 
uh, keep bringing and we'll, we'll supply you with some notes and some good stuff for the future. So next week, how do we get the Old Testament scriptures? What makes up the Old Testament scriptures and how do we get them? Excited? I hope so. I am. All right. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, I pray that uh, those that are here, that they be granted the eyes to see. Lord, the eyes of the heart. Father, I pray that they would be given freedom from the kind of bondage that, that Lord, has held us in darkness. Lord, that you would shine by your grace and power into our hearts. That we might see the beauty, the value, the weightiness, the all-satisfying greatness of yourself and your Son in the Scriptures. Thus knowing that this is not a book for man, but this is a book from God. Lord, I pray that we would have the type of confidence to say that this foundation is so sure and so true, I'm willing to stake my life on it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.